Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 26. If Byzantium is the sheep, who is the wolf? First off, I'd like to thank this month's new Patreon supporters, David Farrow, Yavor Kolorov, and David Etheridge. Thanks to their generous pledges, we're almost at the point where I'm going to be able to afford to devote the time necessary to create two episodes per month again. So, at this rate, fingers crossed, you can hopefully expect two episodes in September, but only if more of you pledge. Also, quick pitch here, remember, I do live full-time in Sofia, Bulgaria, which luckily for me, is a really affordable place to be. So considering that the buying power of a dollar, the exchange rate, is about 1.7, it's kind of like every dollar you pledge is like $1.7 for me. It's kind of like magic except, you know, just economics. So consider pledging and getting in on some of that economic magic and helping us out. Thanks. Okay, so last time we ended with the Byzantine golden era slowly coming to Lenient and popular policies were coming to an end. The Byzantines were pulling back into fortified cities and towns to protect against Pechenig raids in the Balkans. And a series of emperors and empresses brought instability to the palace as the Seljuk Turks arrived on the scene in Armenia, far off to the east. In response to Byzantine mismanagement, the Bulgarians rose up, quickly reconquering most of their old empire. But internal fights, poor leadership, brought the rebellion crashing down. Now, in the aftermath of that rebellion, true intentions are coming to light. As Paisi Hilandarsky, who wrote the first modern history of Bulgaria in his, called the, the Slavo-Bulgarian history, he said, quote, the Greeks did a lot of mischief to the Bulgarians and vexed them, end quote. That's how he summarized this period. So, the Bulgarian uprisings may have been put down, but Byzantine misrule, of course, wasn't limited to Bulgarian lands. As we'll see time and again in Bulgarian history, independence is a genie that's not so easily put back into the bottle. Once a people has known itself as sort of masters of their own destiny, well, they're not going to accept simply returning to an empire where they have no control. So easily, at least. Now, this applied to the Bulgarians, but it also applied to the Serbs. And that brings us to one Stefan Vojislav. Now he was Prince of Duklia, a territory we've mentioned before, and which is roughly where Montenegro is today. He was Prince of the Serbs there, but he was a prince who had been faithfully serving the Byzantines since 1018. During that time, he had watched and helped Basil II in his conquest of Bulgaria. He saw that Byzantine golden era as a time to serve a master, and he served well. But that golden era was coming to an end. Peter II of Bulgaria could see it, the Pechenegs could see it, and Vojislav could see it. Now, he, in response to these changes, had actually participated in a Serbian uprising in 1034, even before the Bulgarians uh, rose up in 1041. And as a result of that failed uprising, he had been thrown in prison in Constantinople. 
As the Chronicles of the Priests of Duclea put it, a source we've mentioned before, they described the tale of that failed uprising in 1034 the following, quote, Showing his wiles and ingenuity, Boyislav had subordinated himself to the Byzantines and rode with them through the provinces as an ally and a comrade. He gave clandestine counsel to the Byzantines so that they would treat the people harshly and unjustly. However, at the same time, he was speaking to the people thus, How great is your injury that you have suffered at the hands of the Byzantines! They judge you unjustly and banish all that is good. They commit adultery with your wives, and they violate and rape your virginal daughters. My forefathers, who were rulers before me, never afflicted such evils upon you, so great and grave is their wickedness. As he did this, in each locality the people began to turn to him and desire him as passionately as they despised the Byzantines. The people consulted amongst themselves, and, exchanging messengers and messages, reached a common decision. On a certain day known to all, they would rise up and kill every Byzantine noble that was found through the whole of Dalmatia." End quote. Now that uprising may have failed, but Vojislav wasn't a man who could be so easily contained. In 1038, he escaped from prison and smuggled himself out of Constantinople, across hundreds of kilometers of mountains and rivers, all the way back to his home to lead another rebellion. Luckily for him, this one went far better, and within a year or two, he was in full control of his own state, stretching from Ston to his capital of Skadar, modern Shkodr in Albania, on the southern banks of the lake of the same name. Now, this wasn't a very large state, honestly not much more than 200 kilometers running along the Adriatic coast, but he controlled it for the moment. For now, though, Byzantine, the Byzantines were going to let him be because, well, they had bigger concerns elsewhere. But much like with Bulgaria, the Byzantines considered this territory an integral part of their empire. This upstart Serbian prince may control it now, but, well, as they saw things, it was only a matter of time before he or his successors were going to be brought back into the fold. Of course, Vojislav could have played nice with the Byzantines, could have tried his best to stay on their good side. But clearly, his rebellions and his imprisonment showed that he had very little interest in doing that. He showed just how much regard he had for the Emperor Michael IV, when in 1039, around a thousand pounds of gold coins were found on a shipwreck on his coast. The gold, as it turns out, was heading for the Byzantines, tax revenue from their provinces in southern Italy. Upon finding the gold, well, Vojislav did what any poorly raised eight-year-old would do. He kept it. When Michael IV strongly protested, Vojislav basically did what that same eight-year-old would do. He said that Michael should come and take it for himself. So that's what Michael did. He sent an army to show this upstart what was what. And, well, do you remember what happened to the Bulgarians when they fought the Serbs in these mountains? Indeed, these mountains are, and were, truly treacherous, with sheer cliffs, rock slides, jagged peaks as far as the eye can see. On a recent hike I took in Rila, in the mountains in Bulgaria, which are not the same, but similar in a lot of their geology, my companions and I decided that a lot of the terrain farther up reminded us of Mordor from The Lord of the Rings. 
High up there, very little grows. Sharp rocks are everywhere. The clouds create this sort of grayness that hangs over like a pall, and, and chilly winds blow even at the height of summer. This is where the Byzantines found themselves. Deep in these mountains, when they were set upon by Serbs and massacred. It's yet another reminder that, in the end, nothing defends Balkan lands quite like mountains. The Danube might make for a pretty frontier on a map, but time and time again, Bulgarians and Serbs have made armies vanish in their mountains. Peter II's uprising came just after this, and many Serbs joined it. But Vojislav waited at the sidelines. If the Bulgarians were successful, he would have a brand new rival as a neighbor. So my best guess is that he was probably pretty content to watch his two enemies just pummel each other, safe in the knowledge that the Byzantines are going to have to leave him alone while they deal with Peter and the Bulgarians. But once the Bulgarians had been defeated, Constantine IX was ready to finish off Vojislav. The year was 1042, the very year Peter II's rebellion came to an end. So Constantine was clearly fairly impatient. The Byzantines mustered troops from Dyrrhachium and moved into the mountains to crush the Serbs. John Skalitsis described what happened following. Quote, it is said that the Serbs had deliberately let them enter Duclea. While he, Michael, took no care about their return, nor did he leave sufficiently strong guards in the gorges. After the incursion, he plundered and burned plains while the Serbs took and kept the gorges and steep places along the road and waited for the return of the Byzantine army." End quote. Now, the Serbs had been perfecting these tactics for generations. They had used them against the Bulgarians under countless Tsars, against all manner of outsiders. Now, they let the Byzantines have their way with the land, let the Byzantines ravage their towns and villages at will, because they knew, once the Byzantines turned around and had to go home, that they would have their revenge. That day was October the 7th, 1042. Rumors of a massive Serb force had been spread amongst the Byzantines, and they were feeling concerned in spite of their 40,000 well-trained men-at-arms. They were passing through a gorge with steep sides, and it was around midnight. A moon lit their way as they blew horns to boost their own morale, to convince the Serbs and themselves of their own power. But the Serbs weren't fooled. They knew these mountains. They knew it was time to strike. Vojislav addressed his sons. Quote, Behold, my dearest sons, how great is the army of the Greeks, and how few are we in comparison. We would achieve nothing by resisting them in battle, so we should act in the following manner. Two of you, Goislav and Radoslav, should remain here, while you other three take ten strong men with trumpets and horns, climb into the mountains, and disperse yourselves through the lofty peaks until the Greeks seem to be encircled. My companions and I will charge into their camp in the middle of the night. When you hear our horns and trumpets, you should at the same time blare forth your own and shriek at the top of your voices from the surrounding ridges. Shortly afterwards, you should sweep down towards their camps, and as you approach, be not afraid, for God will deliver them into our hands." End quote. Well, when the time was right, they did just that. They plunged down from the mountainsides, surprised and surrounded the Byzantines, and were completely victorious. 
More than 25,000 Byzantines were killed, along with seven of their strategos, their commanders. Defeated militarily, the Byzantines resorted to one of their old favorite tactics. They passed around some gold. They passed around to a bunch of Voyaslav's neighbors. And so in 1043, those neighbors sent armies to defeat him where the Byzantines had failed. But, sadly for them, those forces met the same fate. Now that was the last straw. Constantine IX decided he finally just had to let Duklia be. He wasn't going to beat Voyaslav. As a result, the Serbian prince lived his last year in peace before dying in 1043. He had five sons. So now the question was, who was going to rule? Like King Lear, each son was given a portion of the kingdom. But it wasn't long before two sons were murdered in their beds. Not by their brothers seeking power, actually, by usurpers, outsiders. The remaining three brothers banded together to lead an army and enact their own justice upon the murderers. And they were successful. Later, ultimately, after the death of their mother, Mikhailo, one of the sons, became the sole prince of Duklia in 1046. But the son did not maintain the strong independent streak of his father, because in 1050, Mikhailo actually married the niece of that same Byzantine emperor, Constantine IX, that man who had fought so hard to destroy his father and his country's independence. It's remarkable, really. Just imagine that. The same man whose father killed 25,000 Byzantines was now marrying into the royal family. But it paid off. <clears throat> For now, peace came to Serbian lands, and Serbia's only serious enemy, the Byzantines, well, they were paid off. They'd been bought off by marriage. Michael now had a fancy Byzantine title to go with his imperial bride. In the meantime, let's get back to Bulgaria. Normalcy was returning to Bulgarian lands. The Byzantines were continuing their policy of kind of bringing these er territories closer into their administrative structure and imposing their own way of governing there. New imperial buildings were going up amidst the ruins of old Ohrid, the old capital of Samuel, as Constantine IX put his mark on the newly reconquered territories. And so with this, the Balkans really went quiet for about two decades, though there was still much happening in the Byzantine and the wider European world. So let's talk about that. In 1054, the final and complete split between the Eastern and Western churches finally occurred. Then, so, so yeah, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, they finally split. This had been you know, many, many, many decades and centuries in the making, but this was the year when it was made official. Then, in the next year, 1055, Constantine IX finally died. So what was the legacy of this emperor? Well, the final breakup of Christendom, being humiliated by the Serbs before allowing the son of the man who humiliated him and defeated him to marry into his own family? All that and more. We can certainly say Constantine was weak. He couldn't wield the Byzantine military like his predecessors, and it showed. The question was, what would happen now? How would the enemies of Byzantium respond now that he was gone? Well, that was going to depend largely on his successor. Now, he intended that to be the man he had installed to rule the Bulgarian territory, Nikoforos Proteuon. However, with Zoe dead and Constantine about to die, Theodora, 
You remember her? Theodora emerged from her exile in a convent to demand the throne for herself. She was 75 years old, but had clearly never lost her desire for power. And so she was successful. She managed to take the throne. However, like so many who've come to the throne in this, this kind of a way, men and women alike, she saw enemies everywhere and immediately began large-scale purges of the military and administration, further weakening a state left in an awful condition by Constantine. She managed to live just long enough to do that damage and then died the following year. With her, the Macedonian dynasty, which had brought the Byzantine Empire to some of its greatest heights over nearly two centuries of rule, that dynasty which had conquered the first Bulgarian Empire, finally came to an end. Her successor was the military finance minister who became Michael VI. But Theodora had, as you can imagine, not left him with very much to work with. Those who were angry at her mistakes carried that anger right on to him. And within two years, a general named Isaac Komnenos was proclaimed emperor. Michael panicked as this proclamation outside the capital threatened him, and a riot broke out in Constantinople in favor of Isaac, the usurper. So Michael panicked. He abandoned the city and became a monk to die in obscurity. So the emperors were still coming. Now we had Isaac. Now, Isaac sought to fix the empire's broken finances and get himself a marriage. But what's curious is just who he married. It was a woman named Catherine, no big surprise, but it was a certain Catherine of Bulgaria. It was none other than the daughter of the last Tsar of the first Bulgarian empire, Ivan Vladislav, a woman who was also sister to Alusion, who had participated in that Bulgarian uprising of Peter II. Now, you're probably pretty confused at this point, so let me explain. This is a bit of a twist in the story. Because it turns out, the events which followed the failed uprising of Peter II just a few years previously revealed an even darker side to those events. Alusion himself later married the daughter of Byzantine Emperor Romanos Diogenes, and his sister, as I just mentioned, married Isaac Komnenos, another emperor. So... That leaves us to wonder, what kind of a traitor who returns to the fold is twice married into the imperial family? None. These events, these later events, reveal very clearly that Alusion was a Byzantine agent all along. His terrible command of the Bulgarian armies at Thessalonica? Please. The man had once been a Byzantine theme commander. He knew how to command troops. He knew Byzantine military tactics backwards and forwards. What about the fact that he rejected attempts to make him the new Tsar of Bulgaria after maiming Peter? Well, of course he did. He had masters in Constantinople to serve. As so often happens in Bulgarian history, really, the plot just seems to thicken with time. But we can also take a moment here to realize that one of the major goals of so many Tsars of Bulgaria was finally achieved. A Bulgarian of royal stock not the original royal family, the House of Dula, but still a royal Bulgarian, was finally sitting on the Byzantine throne. It only took the destruction of the First Bulgarian Empire and its royal family to abandon it in order to achieve the goal, but there it was. A great dream of so many Tsars was finally achieved. 
and that goal was completely and utterly hollow. Anyway, Isaac led campaigns against the Hungarians and against the Pechenegs just after he took power. He appears to have actually done a pretty good job of both, helping to secure his northern frontier. But he had his own problems. Isaac was paranoid about his own health, really paranoid, a bit of a hypochondriac. And within just two years of taking power, he actually decided to abdicate and himself went off into a monastery. Now that left his wife, Catherine of Bulgaria, sitting there wondering what to do, I imagine. Now, luckily for her, she was very well thought of. People liked her. And she actually managed to reign alongside the new emperor, Constantine X, himself, who had ridden, kind of risen through the ranks under Isaac and was chosen as his successor. But that didn't last very long. Within a few years, she and her children, too, ended up in a monastery. And, well, let's just say so much for Bulgarians making a long-standing impact on the Byzantine royal family. Okay, back to Constantine. Who is this new man? Who is this Constantine X who took power after Isaac? Well, as I mentioned, Isaac managed to run the military fairly well during just two years on the throne, winning two campaigns. But Constantine X, well, he had other plans. He drastically reallocated military funds to the church and to the bureaucracy. He disbanded entire armies. He put incompetent court officials who were kind of close to him in cushy jobs running other armies, men who had no business leading soldiers. Then, to make things worse, he furthered an already troubling trend that was a part of this kind of decline of Byzantine power during this era of replacing Byzantium's excellent professional soldiers with paid mercenaries, further straining the treasury. Then, to fix this, he raised taxes, making himself unpopular with the general population in addition to the military, who obviously despised him. You probably won't be surprised when I tell you that there was a failed assassination attempt against him in 1061. So, true, the Balkans were still quiet. The now Serbian king, Mihailo, was still a friend of Byzantium. But how much longer could that last, with Byzantine arms weakening on all fronts? How much longer could Constantine X hold off the Seljuk Turks when he's disbanding armies in Armenia? How much longer could the Serbs stay their friends when they can see a weak Byzantine emperor, empire ready to be plundered, ready to have territory taken from it? What about the Pechenegs and the Hungarians? True, they may have just been beaten by Isaac, but I've got no doubt they were ready for revenge. And what about the Bulgarians? Could this be their moment? Next time, we'll answer all of those questions. We're going to see who's going to rise and who's going to fall when Byzantine arms weaken. Or, to put it another way, we'll answer the question, if Byzantium is a sheep, who's the wolf? This episode was written by me, Eric Halsey. It was produced by Lance Nelson, and for the first time, getting research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. I really want to thank Stanimir for offering to help out with Bulgarian language research because it takes me way too long to read Bulgarian language sources, and he's going to help a lot in helping in getting these episodes out quicker. As always, the theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Please like us on Facebook, leave us a review on iTunes, get in touch, let us know what you think, let us know what you'd like to see more of, less of, 
anything. It's just me here. Always feel free to get in touch with me. As always, also, if you want to hear more about what's going on in Bulgaria these days, from technology to music to cool stuff to do here during the summer, check out the Bulgarian Now podcast created by Lance Nelson. There you can hear me discuss politics, you can uh, discuss travel, uh, even give an audio tour of Sofia and discuss living in the city. So check all that stuff out, and yeah, hope you're all doing well. So, in the meantime, until next time, uspech, or in English, good luck.